Does your bank support your business while also standing up for the things that matter most to you? If the answer is no, maybe it's time to join an ethical bank. At The Cooperative Bank, we spent 30 years campaigning on issues like climate change and social injustice. And we also offer 30 months free everyday business banking with our Business Direct Plus current account. Join us for business banking. New customers maintaining a credit balance of £1,000. Monthly limits for cash and cheque transactions. Charges may apply for other services. Visit website for details. Subject to status, eligibility and T's and C's. Had massive reception to the David Macmillan stories. Escaping from Thai prison. This is 10 years in Australia. And then found out about Tom, who was actually in the very same prison as David Macmillan in Thailand, just as David is about to do his escape. So the paths crossed. They didn't have time to get to know each other well that the paths crossed. So how many prisons have you been in, Tom, and how much time have you served? I've served 12 years and change, 12 years, four months. Uh, I've been in all the main London prisons, so we're talking Brixton, Wandsworth, Wormwood Scrubs, Pentonville, uh, along with Borstal's detention centres, YP facilities. So from the early 70s, sorry, from the early 70s to very early 80s, I was in and out of in- English prisons. And then served a sentence in a luxury prison in Switzerland. Luxury prison in Switzerland. And there's a great, well, luxury, yeah. You know, wow. you've got to remember that coming from prison in England in the 70s, yeah. bang up 24 hours, no phones, no money, no private spends. Yeah. It was a completely different setup to what it is now. Prison in England in that time, although you're young and it's you can take it, was a lot, lot different to it is now. Why did you end up in prison in England at that time? as a young person i was just an incorrigible thief (laughs) and i gambled and you know and i just graduated from small time theft to bigger time theft but never really big time yeah so mainly you know with the odd fight thrown in and Mm -hmm. different check card fraud you know different forms of crime to get money to gamble yeah that's done a big leap to being in prison in thailand what were you charged with in Thailand? An offence called laxap, which is theft. Okay. So what happened was, uh, we're sort of going ahead of ourselves, but what, what happened was that uh, I was a junkie for three years in Thailand, India, Pakistan, you know, all the hot spots for taking smack. Yeah. Gave it up, cured myself, went to the Thai monastery where they give you the hard detox, went traveling with a little bit of money I had left, mm-hmm. then found myself broke in uh, Bangkok. Mm. So I rang a friend of mine up, a famous jewel thief called The Swan, Brian Cutner, who was associated with a fellow called Maury the Head, who's written a book called The Diamond in My Pocket. I'll have to look out for that one. Well? I'll have to get that one. The head might be alive now in, in his 90s in Milton Keynes. Brian Cutner's dead. Okay. So we can say whatever I want. Okay. But they were famous jewel thieves. Mm-hmm. There was three of them, Murray the Head, Manchester George and the Swan. And they served prison sentences in apartheid, South Africa, New York, 
it wasn't too bad actually apart mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh and australia and they were in the criminal world most criminals would have heard of these especially if they gambled a little because they spent their whole time in gambling clubs throughout london and racetracks so i rang up the swan and said listen the there's a couple of jewellery wholesalers here that we might have a chance in. Well, we did have a chance. The only thing is he got away and I got caught, which is better than both of us getting caught. So that's what I got my prison sentence in Thailand. So So what's that like going into robber jewellers like that? What's the logistics? It's not robbery. It's more sleight of hand. So you go in there... uh, I will refer to him as the Swan, not Brian. Yeah, yeah. Knew his way around stones, having been, you know, grown up in Hatton Garden and that area. Mm. And you're more or less getting them to get displays out of what they call melee, which are like stones that five pointers, ten pointers, what they use to decorate rings. Yeah. But if you get enough packets of them, they come out. So the idea was the Swan does the talking distracting do this do that you know and and i get the packets (laughs) but on this occasion their english wasn't great so i did the talking with a little bit of thai i know yeah and the swan took the packets Mm -hmm. well once the swan was out the shop with the packets my thai had run out (laughs) but i didn't get out the door so they didn't actually see me stealing anything but they knew it was missing and they knew we came into the shop together. In an English court, I'd have probably got out of this, although not now that they can bring up your previous. It's very hard. Mm-hmm. But, uh, and that was what I was, my dilemma was when I went to the Thai prison was, well, I can win this case. Well, before we get to the, That's- how did you get stopped from getting out of the shop? Oh, they realised stones were missing. So there was a, the stones were missing. Yep. I was still talking. And then next thing I know, as I left, there was a scream up and they just barred my way and called the police. So the shop owners barred your way? The shop owners, staff. Gotcha. Staff called, manager come down, they looked at the packets, realised, because they're all numbered, realised that they were missing and called the police. Did you protest your innocence or anything? I just said, I don't know anything about it. Where are they? (laughs) Yeah. And what, what was the police's reaction to you saying that? Uh... But you come in together. You come in together. You come in together. Did they have it on film? Yeah. Oh, Us coming in the shop together. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. But they didn't have it on film of him taking the packets. Because it was such sleight of hand. Sleight of hand. So did they take you to the cop shop then, like a jail? Took me to a police station. Sorry. Macmillan <laughs> <laughs> uh, was in Chinatown. I was in a place called Tung Mahamek, which is in Sealham Road. So okay. it's sort of the Pat Pong area. That's the local police station. Took me there. What's it like in there? Quite, quite dirty, quite mosquito-y. But I'd been travelling in Asia for lots of years, so I was used to this type of life. It was cells, open cells, which had one main central bars, and then the rest was open, and there was people from various crimes. There was a a group of gamblers who were rustled up because gambling's illegal in Thailand, although everyone gambles. And they were having all sorts of luxury food sent in and feeding (laughs) the whole place. 
But I had a girlfriend who I'd just met who later became my wife. Oh, good grief. For a lot, for 18 years. And she used to come. So I was in police, the police station for seven, seven days and then you're off to the prison. How soon before you saw a judge? Saw a judge more or less straight away and then back to the police station and then off to prison. And is this the Klong Prem? So it's pronounced. It's the Klong Prem complex. Yep. So in the Klong Klom- Prem, tongue twister, in the Klong Prem <laughs> complex, you've got the prison that Macmillan escaped from, which is the main building. You've got the cure. Yeah. What he speaks fondly of. <laughs> you've got the women prison, and then you've got the place with the respectable criminals, peace set. <laughs> so my experience was slightly different from his in the way that I didn't when I the place I went to, there wasn't all screaming and people going up the walls from withdrawal symptoms. It was a bit more organized. The you start off in rooms of say thirty which were platforms raised like that, mm-hmm. a gully in the bottom, and then another platform. And then at the bottom, you'd have a huge earthenware vase with water, mm-hmm. like a curtain and a hole-in-the-ground toilet. Mm. But it was kept immaculately clean. The bloke who was in charge of that particular room let you know immediately that shit's got to go down the hole, not on the sides. (laughs) (laughs) And it's got to be kept clean. Now, the worst place to be was obviously right at the end near the toilet. You don't want to be in that place. I realised early on that the best place to be was in the back two, right in the corner. Because you're semi-detached then, aren't you? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise, you're in the terraces, aren't you, if you're in the middle? <laughs> so with a little bit of money, I acquired this place. And did you have soulmates? 30 of you there. 30? Th- maybe 30, 40. I can't... It, a lot. So they were like sardines. And were they foreign people? Like, was it all the foreigners together? No, not at all. Predominantly Thais with a smattering of foreigners. And how did you get along with the Thai prisoners? I spoke a little bit of Thai. Uh, Okay. Didn't see much brutality there, apart from if people fought or caused trouble, they might get a larrapin from the guards with the sticks. But I didn't see any deaths. People who might have had HIV or TB, which are common Mm. in the prisons, were wheedled out quite fast and sent. There was a hospital there that I had to go to once my foot, become infected it wasn't great but it was okay so it was a hospital it was three to two beds with mattresses on the floor but you could get treatment there the food like everywhere else you need a little bit of money so there was food sellers there that sold like deep fried chicken necks catfish curry in little plastic bags and you could buy these for 10 baht at a time So it was manageable. I found out in this prison that if I pleaded, do we want to go into the Thai case now or? Yeah, what would you you prefer? Well, being as we're on it, we can always go back to 
yeah, back yeah, keep, to it. Keep you going, know, yeah. We can go backwards instead of forwards. Yeah, that's fine. Is that okay? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay, so I found out... I'll refer to Macmillan a bit because a lot of what he said is quite true. Yeah, please do. What you need when you're in places like that is information. When you're in a strange country, you don't know. The cell I'd already taken care of because I had a visitor. Money wasn't unlimited, but it wasn't a problem to buy small things there. Did you get some diamond money sent into you? Diamond money was sent after about six weeks, and it was sent to Mali. Mali then moved to Bangkok for a while, and there was enough left over for her to live, as opposed to working in a bar. Instead of having 20 customers, she had one, right. me. <laughs> and she didn't have to work. Right. But, you know, and so she used to come and, and visit and, you know, and quite enjoyed it. So I did get, I didn't leave with prison with any diamond money. It all went during my prison. And there was about 12 grand in total, which probably all went. And do you remember meeting David in there then? He had a different name, didn't he? His name was Daniel Westlake. That's it. When he, when he was there. I think I, you mentioned it on the yes. last cast. That Yeah. And I briefly had a cup of coffee with him. My impression was that he's a cut above most of the prisoners here, but he also wants you to know it. <laughs> but that's just my impression. You know, we're talking the truth here, yes, you know. Yes. And, and since I'm on this, I have spoken to David and we reminisced about a few people we knew. Yeah. Uh, I think he bought me a cup of coffee because when I would have arrived in that prison, I would have been skint because your money that's in your account won't come the same day as you. So when you get transferred to the Building 6, and that's where all the foreigners go, Building 6 to start with, and I think I asked him, he might remember this, I asked him for a cup of coffee, which he, which he did buy for me, but I got the impression that he thought, this geezer's no good to me. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, so our paths, our paths crossed. And why do you think he would have that impression? Because he seemed settled there. He seemed very settled. He had a good setup. Well, he was focused, wasn't he? He was about to escape, wasn't he? Yeah, I don't think this was quite soon. Okay. I don't I don't I think I'd been there a year before he escaped. Okay. I could chronologically check if I did yeah. the time. But I think he was there a year. But he was focused and he had his set up and you know and, and I got friendly with someone else there, a fella called Gary. So that was who I was but I was in building six very briefly. I was in there maybe a week to two weeks. And my focus was on getting to building two. They had two foreign buildings. One was two, one was five. If you wanted to stay in six, you could go about it two ways. You could either pay or you had to work. Six was a working building. Mm. Now, I've spent near 12 and a half years in prison because I don't like work. The last thing I want to do is work when I get there. <laughs> just don't want to, you know. It's just yeah. a, to some people, work's a good way to pass their time. If yeah. you're into hobbies and stuff, I could quite easily pass the time reading, walking around. and I'm, the, I'm right with you. I was dodging work so I could just keep reading in prison mm. and then educating myself. Mm. rather than go in the kitchen and do all that. And keep looking at the clock. When do you finish? It's, it's, <laughs> made, it's like doing a double sentence working. 
Well, sort of, you know, I'm sure fellow Skyvers will, will appreciate what I'm saying. The industrious among you might not agree, but that's just my view on it. So I wanted to get out of six. I found out from uh, people there that two was a good building if you didn't, if you wanted to not work. Right. It was set up where they had American huts, English huts, different form of huts, and a huge space to walk around in a field. And uh, so I, that's what, that was my target to get to six. But let's go back a bit from when I got there, okay. from when I was in PSET. Now mm -hmm. I'm weighing up. I'm looking at a 10-year sentence of which... If I plead guilty, I'll get five years. And okay? we have to serve the whole five. I didn't know this at the time. No, I wouldn't because I would have been eligible for amnesties. But mm. you have to do about two years before you get the full cut of the amnesty. So this is, what, this is the scenario I'm faced with after speaking to a couple of people who are in the know. I can plead not guilty and I might win. If I lose... I get the 10 years. Mm. But there was I was told that there was a huge amnesties two in a row coming up. One was the king's 50th years on the throne or 50th birthday, but the year before that there was also the queen mother's birthday. And I was told that if I would plead guilty, I would take the 5 years by the time the amnesties would come up, I would have served 2 years and been fully eligible for the for them. That's a small price then. So I pleaded guilty. And yeah. also, if I'd have pleaded not guilty, I might not have gone to trial for two years. So I could have got gone got gone to trial, lost the case, and then not been eligible for any amnesties. So I bit the bullet and uh was out of there in three months. So I was in PSET for three months and then I was in building six and and then building two. And the uh, it worked according to plan. I, I got out in two years, eight months. I, this prison sentence, I, the hardest thing about prison, I think, from when I was young, is if you've got people worrying about you and dependent, on the outside. If you've got no one or worrying or dependence, you've only got yourself to worry about. And it's certainly easy on the old canister. Yes. And who was worried about you? No one. <laughs> <laughs> so it was a breeze for me. Apart from Mally, but I'd only met Mally for a month before I got arrested. Yeah. We later got married and that's a story for later. But at the time, no one was worried about me. My family were dead. The few friends that you, they're not worried about you. They're concerned. So, and also in building two, nearly everyone was either waiting for a huge sentence or doing 30 years. I'm going to be out in two and a half years. So psychologically, you look around and you think, well, makes you feel a bit better. Yes. You said you clicked up with a guy in there who was your friend? Briefly, in Building 6. What was his story? Uh, a heroin run, mm -hmm. uh, caught in the, in the uh, hotel. Was that death penalty then? Not for his offence, because the death penalty was generally if you get caught in the airport. Okay. 
And you only get the death penalty if you plead not guilty. Okay. <laughs> and the death penalty they don't carry out. Mm. And also, but it means you might spend a bit. The worst thing about the death penalty, I believe, is that you spend a long time in chains. Mm. But they don't carry the death penalty out. It's the threat of it that if you get the most serious thing with Thai drugs is to get caught at the airport. Yeah. Gary got caught. He's still facing 25, but you know, as the Thais say, Nick Noy a little bit. But prisoner exchange had just come out, so people who were getting these big sentences, providing they were from the countries who did the exchange, were looking to do seven, eight years before they're eligible. I'm not quite sure. I think it's eight years before. When I was there, only two people had got them, but they were becoming more common. Wow. So there was people there who were into four or five years who were hoping to get them in a few, in a few years' time. Yeah, and uh, the so most people where I was were, were doing lot, waiting for long, long times. The problem I found with building two is that most of the Europeans. So, in building two, there was probably a hundred and thirty foreigners. Eighty or ninety would have been African. Nigeria, Ghana. Smugglers, yeah. Smugglers, couriers. And the Africans controlled the smack trade in prison. Now, I've been a junkie before, so the last thing I want to do when I'm in prison and I'm clean is to be a junkie again. That's I don't need this at all, and I have no interest in it. So most of the foreigners, the non-African foreigners, were junkies. And I found that a lot of people were from middle class, upper middle class families who had gone to Thailand for holidays, experimented with drugs, gone skint travelling, did a little run. Most of them were there for small amounts. There wasn't any real kilo, apart from the Africans. They had plenty of kilos, but but they got plenty. So all the most of the foreigners were, were smack addicts. So when I first go to Building 2, I'm invited into the English hut. Very welcomely. I think there was four people. There was Johnny Russell, who was David McMillan's mate. There was a fellow called Simon Whitaker, a low life from South London called Tony and someone else. But apart from one of them, they were all drug addicts. So no wonder they wanted me in there because I'd buy the food. <laughs> so I soon bailed out of this and just became an independent, just found my own way and ordered my food through different groups. What happens with the food here, I think David touched on it, is that you place his experience with the prison banks was completely different to mine because it had changed. So what had happened is you'd have money come to your prison account and you could order fresh food, I think it was three or four days a week. So you could order pork, beef, chicken, vegetables, ice. What I used to do was fill an order out for a group for the week, and they'd cook. <laughs> so uh, one week I could be in Chinese, the next week African, the next week Thai. And, but I found it, I would rather be in prison in building two than locked up 23 hours a day in an English prison. I would take this hands down. 
once you get over the discomforts of cockroaches and centipedes and rats coming in the toilet as you're having a dump, <laughs> you know, you do get round it because the cells improve. You don't, you know, the start off with it's pretty manky, but it gets better. The freedom you've got is quite good. You're opened up at roughly seven in the morning. You're let out to do what you want all day. And you get banged up about five at night. And if you've got a decent cell with a fan, uh, it's okay. And another thing about building two, there was only three to, three to four to each cell, mm. some of them twos. So you can make a cell quite nice. It was, I'll give you a quick analysis of my day. Okay. So, yeah, go for it. so we used to wake up in the morning, seven o'clock. First thing we wanted to do was take a shower. So they had concrete tanks. You can imagine concrete like that mm -hmm. in a rectangle, maybe a hundred foot long, 10 foot that way, hundred foot that way, filled with water. These would be cleaned regularly because in the rainy season, you can get quite a lot of algae. And so these were cleaned and scrubbed. But so you'd wake up with a bucket, have your tie shower. Next thing was important was coffee and donuts. So you'd have Nescafe made with all milk and a little bit of condensed milk to sweeten it. <laughs> and then there'd be uh, different groups frying like sweet donuts and stuff like that. They cost about a bar each, a penny each. So you'd have them and contemplate the day. <laughs> after that, and after all the ties had gone to work, we used to play a 15 over a side cricket match. <laughs> <laughs> with a proper cricket bat, tennis balls, and a few boxes in strategic slip fielding <laughs> positions. <laughs> and that's, we were allowed to play cricket till an hour before lunchtime. So after the cricket uh, finished, I used to have breakfast with a Sri Lankan group, which would consist of a, a roti, scrambled egg, chopped onion, chopped tomatoes, bit of chilli, wrapped up, freshly cooked. There's not many people that have had a breakfast better than that this morning, is there? And we're in Guildford. <laughs> <laughs> Be fair. <laughs> okay. But it's very... And then I used to do a little bit of working out with a few of the Ghanaians. You couldn't do it with the Nigerians. They're all lumps. You know, the Ghanaians <laughs> were a bit smaller. And uh, maybe smoke a bit of weed if the mood took me and just walk. We had a good space to walk. And then you had the choice. You could either have your food downstairs or take it upstairs in little tin pintos, which are like canisters. You've seen them, haven't you, in yeah. India with little compartments. <laughs> Depended on what cell I was in at the time was where I ate. A lot of the times I ate downstairs. And it's not bad for you to have a 16-hour fast in between food. Well, a keto diet does that now, doesn't it? You know, it's 16 hours fasting. Yeah, yeah. Let your organs rest. Yeah, it's not that bad. But if I was in a comfortable cell with, with less piranhas, I would take my food up and eat later. So over the space of time, I probably had a, was in about four different cells. Because what happened is I didn't actually buy a cell like Macmillan. I bought into a cell that was already vacant. So paid the guy who had the cell, and then we might have fallen out. So it depended on that. So, But mainly your whole day, if you're not thinking of escape, consists of having nice food and keeping yourself healthy. And you can have nice food. You've got to remember you've got cooks from all over the world. India, Thailand, Sri Lanka, Africa. 
It's not bad, is no, it? No, it's not. <laughs> so if you haven't got a wife and two young kids mm. waiting for you and demanding money, you can suffer it. <laughs> <laughs> so what gave you the mental strength to stay off the smack? I went to the... It's quite famous now, but when I went there, it wasn't quite as famous. There's a place called Wat Tamkrabok, which is in Saraburi. And they give you... It's a proper... There's been documentaries of it where you don't know if you've seen where you have to take special herbal medicine, kneel down, put your arms behind someone who's standing behind you, monks give you this medicine and you immediately throw up. So, and this is a hard detox and this is the purest form of detox because it's getting everything out of your system without any substitution. So you do this five Drink five of these tots, last for 10 days. When that's finished, you'll go to a, a sauna. I remember the bloke who was fixing the sauna was there was a, a leftover, a black fella from the Vietnam War, and he'd become a monk. And he's, they've written a book about him, and he's worked his whole life in this rehabilitation. Do you remember what the book's called? No, okay. but we can Google it. You yeah. only have to Google what Tamkrabok and you'll see what goes on there because okay. now it's a bit more refined. Now more people are going there. And he was in charge of the sauna, like chopping the wood to make sure. And you had to have a sauna every day. And I remember saying to him, I'd give my little finger for a cheeseburger. He said, I'd give my whole arm. <laughs> <laughs> and he was, you know, he was, but he was a relic from the Vietnam yeah. war and he'd worked there. And this is a 30-day treatment. And what made me give up was that I'd wasted three years on it, done some horrendous things <laughs> regarding getting money for it, which we won't go into all of them, but we can touch on a few, <laughs> and decided that I wanted to live my life and travel. So I did the 30 days there, went to a small island in Indonesia called Nias, where they had the tsunami afterwards, and spent four months there and five months in Lake Melinjau, and then I was cured. Wow, what grief. I remember thinking when I first got out of there after the 30 days, because you've got to remember it's part of your life for three years. Mm -hmm. You know, sticking four needles in your arm a day. Okay, you're getting the good stuff, yeah. you're not, you know, and you're not queuing up in tower blocks smelling a piss waiting to score. <laughs> you know, you're getting it. Those little fluffy balls that Macmillan talks about, that's what <laughs> you're getting. And, uh, yeah, so I realised it was time to give up. But then the life that I wanted to live, you needed a bit of money for. Hence, I got caught stealing in Thailand. How old were you when you first tried heroin? Maybe 20, Chase the Dragon. What was the circumstances? Someone said they had something good for coming off down off cocaine. <laughs> uh, and I'd sort of dabbled with it. My, my prison sentence in Switzerland in 1981 was drugs. So prior to heroin, what drugs had you taken? Uh, most what everyone took, speed, hash. So speed, weed, hash. Yeah, I didn't like, never liked the speedy type things. Mm -hmm. But I think hash was part, even even when I was in prison in England in the 70s, people were getting hashing. Mm. You know, it's been, it's. I think it's been around, you know, so, yeah. So did anything notable happen to you in the Thai prison then? 
No, apart from getting the infection once, it saw a, a little bit of brutality, but not lots. There was a fight between three Thai kids arguing. They got them smashed to pieces with sticks, but not like hospitalised. And then what they did was they chained them all to a tree for the night so they could get to like each other. <laughs> <laughs> so the, they had them in wrist, wrist, wrist change. You can imagine us three in wrist change and the trees in the middle. Oh. And they left them there all night amongst the mosquitoes. Oh. And in the morning they were covered in bites because this tree was by some stagnant water. Ice. I I didn't have the freedom to roam the prison like Macmillan, but I'd had a couple of visits to hospitals for different things and they'd give standard medicines. I only, I never got to see, I think it was, or building 10 or 11, which was full of people with uh, HIV mm. and TB. You saw some things that were... Have any of you travelled to India? Have you travelled no, to India? No, no, Okay, well, when you travel in India, there's certain places that you can just sit down and watch people all day. <laughs> well, there's certain things that happened in the Thai prison that you could watch. For example, I was walking around the yard. It was, a, it was probably a third of a kilometre, the walk we could do. So it was a decent walk. You know, three times round was a kilometre. So it was a nice walk, field, back of factories. And I remember passing the, it was Thai's Day Off at the weekend, passing, and there was a group of six Thais with a spoon with some smacking and a needle with a tube that must have been that thin, <laughs> wafer thin. And what they were doing is they were sucking this tube up, sucking the heroin up through the tube, then going like that to put the, into finding a vein wherever it might be and blowing the heroin in through lack of a syringe. So these were things that you could sort of stop and watch. Oh, it's not the seventh wonder of the world, but it was tricky. And what I used to like watching, there's a game that the Thais play and some of the Africans became good at it called Takor. So it's with a rat and ball. It's like same rules as volleyball, but you can use your you have to use your feet, not your hands. And they have it in the Asian games and stuff. And so you imagine your feet must be tough. This is a and I used to like watching them play that. So it's like watching volleyball, but with your feet. And what was your interactions with the guards like? Didn't have much to do with them. They used to. Uh, you could get the mm, if you. Mally used to send money to a guard and I could use the, his mobile, mm. things like that. Uh, the coffee shop side of it, I was only in the building six weeks, two months, and that coffee shop wasn't a coffee shop anymore. You could only order food what you could order. So the fresh food that came in, Thais couldn't order this. They could order other stuff. And the guards, I didn't have much to do with them. I didn't want anything of them. I didn't need anything. I didn't need any favours. Once I had my cell, they'd just leave you alone. They'd yeah. patrol, they'd have a few jokes with you. And, and there was a couple of guards that you could use their phones mm -hmm. and it was known you could. So you'd probably send them some money and then they'd just say to you, Mr. Tom, money finished. And that means you have to go at the top up. <laughs> <laughs> but it wasn't outrageously expensive and there was a lot of phone calls I, uh, the guards I found would leave you alone unless you called as, as disruption to the prison. Big fights, destructive property, 
flagrant drug use. You see them, you, you always knew that they could be nasty if they had to see a few fights where people were just battered with like batons. But then the rest of the damage you don't see because they go to a place called the soy, which is like our block, only a lot worse. And then they do things to you there. It depends what you've done. The worst thing you could do is spit or smash at a guard. You know. So, so as, you, as you're getting closer then to getting released from the tie, are you thinking that you're going to... Uh, what's your next plans after that? Are you planning things, scheming? No, I wasn't scheming. My idea... My, I knew that having uh, been a non-drug case, I'd be able to get back to Thailand. Yeah. So getting out of the Thai prison... I had to go to somewhere called Immigration Detention Centre because you need a ticket to get home. If it wasn't embassy-related, you can go anywhere you want, but the embassy become involved. So I had nowhere to live when I came back to London. So I got involved with welfare for prisoners abroad, which will send you money and a small amount of money if you need it. I didn't need it, so I didn't ask for them, but they could find you accommodation. So my idea was, remember, I'm coming back skint and rely, re, relying on a, a few friends that will help me out. My initial plan was to find somewhere to live. So prisoners, welfare for prisoners abroad found me a hostel in Whitechapel, a Salvation Army hostel. What year is this? 96. 97, when I got out. I got out in 97. So, and that was where I started out life in Whitechapel. My nan was from there. All my family, had, I, I didn't have any brothers and sisters, but I had a huge family, great aunts, great uncles, but they'd all died then. I had some friends who, you know, being gamblers, they might have money or might not. But I needed somewhere to live. So the idea was to stay in this hostel, maybe get a council flat and somehow get back to Thailand. I really wanted to go back to Thailand. And how, I, how did that work out for you? Well, it worked out OK, because I got the uh, Salvation Army place. Uh, a good friend of mine who was murdered recently in a famous case in the paper called the Honey Trap Murder. His name's Mehmet Hassan, and he's my greatest friend. He was my best ever friend. He got I murdered? Was, what's, what's, the, what's his story then? He came, it's been in the papers You quite a lot. He was reasonable-sized Holden player, always had money, played in the big casinos, Palm Beach, Victoria Club, you know, high-stakes games. And uh, he met a girl, as you do. She just happened to be a bit younger than him. And the few dates, you know, and he came out the Palm Beach Casino with her, was on CCTV, and they went to somewhere to eat in Berkeley Square. Japanese, I forget the name of it. Back to his place in Essex Road. He was, they were having fun and games, I guess, drinking, maybe sniffing and something. Uh, suddenly she went up to 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 get up to toilet. He was approached in his bedroom with uh, three black fellas with gas masks on. You can see the videos of this on YouTube. And they uh, they killed him, tortured him to death. So she they, was in on it? Oh, yeah, she got 12 years. They're in prison now. It's only 12 years? 
Well, she wasn't there for the murder. She'd bust off. They didn't need to murder him. He would have given them the money. But whereas she'd probably seen him with 20, 30 grand this particular night, he might have had four on him. But they, they tortured him quite badly. They tied him to a chair and tortured him to death, really. Oh, and he was a lovely fellow. Out of all my group who grew up with, he was the best. He was my best friend. I wasn't his best friend. He had many. That's and so sad, uh, yeah. and it's called the Honey Trap Murder. It was in all the papers, the in oh, Evening yeah. Standard, because it was such a high-profile case. How they got when they caught the fellas, there was a video of them with the gas masks and about four grand going like that on video, laughing and joking. And that was the evidence Criminal against geniuses. him. Well, they got 30 years each, I think. But they needn't have killed him. Senseless. So I'm getting ahead of myself. He helped, he helped me when I came out of prison. Uh, it was the year of the World Cup, 1998. I had a nice bet on France to win it. Got a council flat in Kentish Town and sold it and went back to Thailand. Right. <laughs> and met Mali. So you're on the straight and narrow now in Thailand? I was on the straight and narrow. There was uh, quite a good gambling scene there, backgammon, poker. After years and years experience in clubs, I was could hold my own at these games. And uh, things were going well. The only thing was, after I'd been with Mally in a year and a half, she had got MS. Mm. So I remember thinking to myself, when she was diagnosed with it, I knew all about MS because one of my aunties had it. I remember looking up to the sky like Paul Newman in Call and Luke, yeah. sorry, mm. thinking, what the f have I done now? How am mm. I going to get out of this? Mm. And then remember looking in the mirror and thinking, well, this one thing you can't run away from. You've run away from everything else in your life. You can't do this. And... We stayed in Thailand as long as possible. I had a holiday business that did adventure holidays for disabled people. Mali was part of it until she got sick. But then acts of God, tsunamis, military coups. The last thing you want to see if you're in the holiday business at Christmas time is tanks on the street in Bangkok. <laughs> That's when you get all your people arriving and all the bookings for next year. And the tsunami didn't help, although it wasn't a disaster. MS started to get worse. Hospital bills increased as the hospitals were doing medical tourism as well. And it was just a constant, constant flow of money and the business dried up. Tried everything I could to stay there, sold one house three times, you know, various things as you do to survive. Yeah. Uh, went to Las Vegas to play in the World Series of Poker just to see... Well, I didn't succeed. And... Uh, Eventually, we had to come back to England and we left two adopted daughters behind. Although looked after, we still had a house and with their aunties. And I knew as I got off the plane in, when are we talking now, 2008, I came before Mally because I came direct to Vegas. She was waiting for a visa. And I knew as I got off the plane that I'm going to spend the next 10 years caring for her and finish up skint. <laughs> That's exactly what happened. Wow. And that was that your last prison stint was Thailand? Actually, no. As we talk now, I'm still on license. 
For what? People trafficking. <laughs> what does that mean? Well, it doesn't quite say... When you say it like that, it sounds like you're selling people to brothels or workshops. Yeah. But it's not that. It's meeting some Kurdish people whose families were involved with Syria in that conflict and had to get out the country. And I charged for it and brought their family back. How did you do all that if you're in England? Picked them up. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I went to... At the time, Mally had just died. Mally had been dead a few months. I wasn't really in the frame of mind of thinking correctly. It was more or less like a hands-up job. Mm. And uh, just went and got them. If I'd have been... Went to court the day I got arrested for it, I'd have probably got off on humanitarian grounds. But in the coming two years that I was on bail trying to find homes for the dogs, that was my excuse anyway. I prolonged it. I was watching stories of fires in Calais and more boatloads of people. And I was sinking lower into the chair, <laughs> thinking, why didn't I plead guilty earlier? But uh, the family who I got through have got a picture of me on their mantelpiece with their kids because they were so glad to get to England. So you helped people get out of war-torn areas then? Yeah. Yeah. And what was... For money. For not, money, not yeah. For, not for money. For, you didn't do not, it for free. No, I didn't do it for yeah. free because if you get caught, you get in prison for it. So what is... If they're, if they're crossing borders illegally, how are you getting them over these borders? Okay, my job wasn't... My job was to just pick them up from Holland and bring them across one border. So the final leg? The final leg, the most important leg, is to England. And how did they get out of Syria or wherever to Holland? Well, how did they get over all those borders? Paying different people money, different connections. You know, you're talking about you're getting through Turkey. There's various ways. But I guess at every juncture, there's a payoff. Yeah, and you're looking at people who can afford to do it. What you tend to find is that there's lots of Kurdish, not just Kurdish, lots of people here who have got families in these countries and they work and save money to get them over. I see. And how um, did you, your bit then, did they, how did you get caught and how did you do your bit? What was the actual logistics? like? The logistics of was that I had a Mitsubishi van uh, and I just put them in the van, covered them over and drove. <laughs> so did you get to a checkpoint like that? Yeah. Which checkpoint was it? Well, to start off with, uh, how can I best put this? Okay, to start off with, I made my own arrangements. So Holland was the best, I thought, would be the best country to get caught in. France, where they had the what they call the jungle in Calais. It's been on the news a lot. Seen People that, doing yeah. it all the time would be a bit risky. If you got caught in Holland... The people don't go to prison, they just let them go back. And I thought that if I got caught in Holland, 
the chances are that I wouldn't get much either. And also, if you get caught in the country that you're leaving from, you don't get paid. Oh. If they get caught in England, you get paid because they've now got asylum. They come over with no documents, nothing, and they get asylum. And eventually, when you bring them in, they do turn themselves in because otherwise they can't get medical. So they don't. They all turn themselves in and go to various homes in in Croydon and different places. So, yeah, so I'm still on licence for it. And how did you get caught? Well, they opened the car <laughs> <laughs> and searched around. <laughs> and that was in this side. Yeah. So they got their asylum. Yeah. I see. And we're going to court then. Were you potentially facing a prison sentence for that? Yeah, but I was. I would have played on my... I didn't... I should have gone pleaded guilty and got it done quickly. But I had two dogs t to worry about. And, you know, I had a flat and it was difficult. And I strung it out. Eventually, I knew that I was going to get roughly two years. Yeah, I see. And I got two and a half. Okay. So, but a lot of this was circumstances. Wife dying, skint. Didn't care if I got... When I did it, I didn't care if I got nicked. You know, I'd gone from eight years of taking care of Mally 24 hours a day, within reason, you know, had a little bit of help. So I knew nothing else, had a car. So suddenly when Mally dies, everything stops. They take the car back, everything. So now what do you do? You've dedicated, you know, ideally what you do is go and get a job and work and, <laughs> you know, in an ideal world, but... So I didn't. So you said we jumped ahead with all this. Mm. Which experiences did you want to go back to? Well, I think that uh, we we could start when I first got in trouble, when I did detention centre in Send. Okay, yeah, let's go there then. What was that for then? I started getting in trouble in my teens. My childhood was spent in between Bethnal Green, Maida Vale and Chiswick. My parents were split up. So I uh, used to go to school in Bethnal Green in Balance Road. Remember when we were very young, we used to go past Violet Cray's house and they used to say, be quiet or Ronnie and Reggie will get you. <laughs> <laughs> so I used to go to school in Balance Road, which is where that's amongst one of the schools. No reason for me to get in trouble at all. Came from a not a bad family, not abused, not good Jewish family. No reason for me to get in trouble at all. But living in Bethnal Green, you do get in trouble, starting out at the local pickled cucumber factory, stealing pickled cucumbers to burgling phone boxes, and then you graduate. Well, we won't go into all that pettiness, but I find myself getting arrested at 13, with two people who were older than me for robbery with violence. We mug someone. Because I was 13 at the time, uh, we had to go to the old Bailey. <laughs> so I was 14 when I got sentenced and I was taken to uh, a kiddie's remand place called Ashford. 
Ashford, Middlesex. So you spent time, and because we were waiting to go to the Old Bailey, it took six months for trial. So I hadn't been to prison before this. I'd been arrested, and I think I had to spend three months in a kid's home called Stamford House in Shepherd's Bush. Old-time criminals will know this place quite well. <laughs> so this was my first prison sentence at a very young age. Uh, by the time I got sentenced, I was 14. So at the time, they used to call it a short, sharp shock, DC. And you'd normally get it for three months, but you could get it six months. And in special cases, although the memories fade me now, you could get nine months. So if you served, uh, th if you got three months, you did two months, eight days. If you got six months, you did four months, five days. I got six months of it. So I remember coming from a remand prison where you could have food brought up every day, not like now. You could have KFC, your nan's home cooking, <laughs> cartons of cigarettes, orange juice with vodka in You know, it wasn't <laughs> not like that now. So I'm on the bus from the old Bailey, the old green transit van with the bars. <laughs> taking me to send just me because I was the only one going to send from the old Bailey no one else to pick up I said to the driver with smoking opening my packets of 10 embassy <laughs> smoking in the car I said what's it like at this send he said you'll love it it's easy but I'd already heard reports that it was quite tough where they you have to do it's run on an army camp where you have to do quite a lot of physical exercise and work but anyway i never forget this van driver you'll love it there it's easy you'll come out super fit so i saunter off the bus with an embassy hanging out my mouth <laughs> the first thing i could recollect bang right round the face <laughs> you little <laughs> bastard no smoke <laughs> next thing i'm overloaded with this kit which is you starts off with a rain mac like an oil skin rain mac of which you know i was about four foot two <laughs> you start out with this rain mac that started to put in gray trousers jumper work boots and it, it, it was ginormous it was like that then you're told to run well i fell over straight away with the kit all the stuff I remember being in the cell the first night, looking up at the ceiling, crying my eyes out. It was hell. Most of the screws there were ex-army, but they were in plain clothes. They weren't in prison uniform and everything was at the double. And it was winter when I got there and you'd have to run to the showers and they used to flick you with their chains. You know, the screws chains, not whip you with them, but flick you. Well, you know when you've been at the swimming baths and you've been flicked with a towel? It stings, doesn't it? Yeah. And you can imagine what these chains are like. And then there'd be a corridor outside, which they called the M1. It was like squares, you know, that size squares, black and white squares. And then if you were talking in the dining hall, you'd get a plastic cup on the top of the head and go and scrub the M1 with a toothbrush. Mm. Now, people now might think I'm exaggeration, exaggerating. I assure you now I wasn't. It was run like an army boot camp. 
But eventually, like everything else, you get used to it. The fitness program there was incredible. They used to have you up at six in the morning doing bunny hops around the yard with a medicine ball. (laughs) And then you had circuit training, which people love now when they go to prison. But now, at that time, you were forced to do it. It wasn't that good. But then you get used to it. And I decided I... uh, I lost all my remission there, so I could have been out in four, four months, five days, and I finished up doing six months. Because of naughty behaviour? Most of it for naughty behaviour, but after I'd lost the first month, so I had five months left, they decided that you know I'd conformed a bit, and... Uh, they gave me like a went to the good dorm which had a tv could work in the allotments which is i decide that there's a girlfriend i want to see and i'm going to escape (laughs) so it wasn't an escape but there was a fence so it was like a you know like corrugated wire fence that went straight up about 10 foot back a bit razor wire so it wasn't really an escape and there was a young lad who wanted to come with me i never forget his name philip madden so we decide we're going to go up we're going to go down the west end i'm going to find this bird and that's it (laughs) but we've got wellington boots on and there's fields that we've got to run through so i managed to get over the fence slum something over it a tarp and poor old Madden's stuck in the barbed wire. Oh. And I'm trying to fish him out and fish him. And I said, look, anyway, I left him there. So, well, I couldn't get him out. The fence is facing that way. I get over and he put his leg through and it went through the tarp and all the razor wires stuck in him. Oh. And I remember running through these fields in Wellington boots, seeing guards all around me converging on me. <laughs> And I thought to myself, well, at least let's get to the main road. (laughs) So I I got to the main road, got back, got quite a good hiding, not hospitalised, but, you know, slaps and dead legs and stuff that hurts, but not like put in hospital and tortured or anything like that. And then 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 I lose all my remission and get out of there. Uh... Where next? Is that <laughs> is that where you when is it when you're brushing up against all these people who become big names later on? Oh, this is after Borstal. We've got a gap, you know, that okay. comes after Borstal. Okay. So we'll cover the Borstal a little bit. Okay. Because there was a couple of interesting things. So it's decided that I was Another form of petty crime that I get nicked for, which I can't remember. There's been numerous ones for theft or whatever. Mm -hmm. It's not that relevant. So I get Borstal. And at the time, Borstal was anything from six months to two years. Mm -hmm. People who hadn't been to detention centre before generally got easier type Borstals. We're talking about the southern England now, so you're not... so. The hardest Borstal at the time talked about was Portland. No one wanted to go there. Dover and Rochester were next. The easy ones were Hollersley Bay, North Sea, those type of where people could get out in seven or eight months. Even though the time was six months to two years, so it's minimum six months, maximum two years, the general time you'd get out is between 11 and 13 months. But they always had that overview, over you. 
So I go to Dover Borstal. Uh, not specially bad. It was surrounded by a moat. It's like a castle. You're on the white cliffs of Dover. The hardest I've ever worked in my life was in Dover Borstal. Our job was to build on the white cliffs, the famous white cliffs of Dover, was to build a pipeline. Well, you start off with a pickaxe that has to go through chalk. So each time you hit it, it's like having an electric shot through your shoulders. When you finish the chalk, you've now shoveling clay, thick dark brown clay and this tunnel went on for miles and miles and miles this was the worst job you could have but you're young don't you you know it's it's not bad for you this work it was just hard it's not necessarily bad for you but getting into various trouble in Borstal I now find myself getting into trouble with a works guard who my mum came up on a visit um she had a star of david my mum was jewish and one of the works guards was quite rude to my mum and then not sexually rude but i racist i can't maybe i couldn't put my finger on it but then the next day it went on again at work and he said something and I threw some clay at him and it hit him in the face. It wasn't hard, not a hard drop, but you can't, you can't do that. But this guard was corrupt. He was bringing in things for people and he was a works, so a civvy. So I now found myself in the block in, in, in Dover and, and this was a real eye-opener because this block was sort of underground, but the windows that you could pull up to you could see people's feet walking by so the cell was below ground and it's hard to visualize now but what they do is in the morning everything had come out the cell that's everything you'd have nothing you'd have the bible only that was your only bit of furniture so you could either read it or use it as a pillar or smoke with it (laughs) We couldn't smell. There's nothing to smoke. Okay. There's no way to, you know, you, but, so I was there. So, so you'd be opened up in the morning, you'd have a shower and you're in this room for like 20, you might get half an hour's exercise and half an hour for a shower. Absolutely nothing. I remember someone I was close to got me the book Papillon. And it was like winning the lottery. Oh. It was a thousand pages. Uh, and what I did was I just took the covers off the Bible <laughs> and put it on paper. Because <laughs> the cell's completely bare. There's nothing, yeah. there's nowhere to hide anything. So I tore the covers off the Bible and sort of put it strategically, where at a glance it looked like the Bible was there. <laughs> You know, you couldn't have Papillon staring at the guards as they open with a butterfly tattoo because they'd confiscate it. I so, completely relate. When I read Papillon in prison... It's like being in fantasy land. Isn't it? it? The Leper's Island, the escapes, the captures. The, well, it's oh, like being out of jail. It was, it? yeah. It yeah. takes you out of jail. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. Mm. And I think we discussed before that the only book that I've read that's better than that is Shantaram. 
best book oh, ever written by someone who's been in prison. Chancellor, am I a great Without master, a doubt, masterpiece? Masterpiece. The poetry, the philosophy, the sentence structures, just um, get goosebumps just reading the sentences. It's so poetic. Well, David McMillan said he met him. Well, he met everyone, but he said he met him briefly. Because he was in, I don't think he was in the Supermax, but he was somewhere that he escaped from, wasn't he? Yes. In Chamteram, yeah. he was somewhere that he escaped. But anyway, that's a... So, I now... <laughs> okay. I keep, look, to all you viewers, I keep tapping my feet. And you're not meant to because it interferes with the sound. It must be a nervous twitch I've got. Okay, let's clarify that. So you are now a teenage reader. Teenage reader. Yeah. I'd read before Papel Westerns, JT, you know, yeah. comics, Westerns, teenage reader, yes. And that was a great, a great book to read. So now I don't want to be in this prison with the with with this guard anymore. And I'm getting a victimized a bit and you know, called Jubal not comfortable with it, you know, we're talking like seventies. You know, no bacon for you and stuff like that. So I then say to the governor when I go up for my sentence, he said, I can't remember what you give me. I said, listen, the guard who I threw that to is corrupt. And they ship me out to Rochester. <laughs> so I go to Rochester, Borstal, and I get involved. Rochester, similar to Dover, get involved with a group of people that decide they want to create a small riot with black people. Now, I've got nothing. We're talking 70s era. I don't want to be involved in this at all. Coming from the East End, lots of, we had black kids. I had friends. Anyway, for my trouble in the riot, I get a billiard ball in my face, <laughs> and that's the least I know about it down the block again. The billiard ball smashed all my teeth and my nose. So now get shipped out of Rochester. The person who started the riot was a very famous, living, existing London gangster. As famous as you can get, you can draw your own conclusions. He's from London, but I'm not mentioning his name. Not Bronson. No, 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 no. Hmm. He's part of a family. Anyone? Okay. Any guys? Got any guesses? Richardson? No, no, they're way before my time. Okay, I'm going to tell you. I shouldn't, but I'll tell you. Well, he got my teeth knocked out. Patrick Adams. Okay, the Adams, yeah. yeah. Okay. So we don't need to say any more about it, but we were kids. He was involved in the riot, and I was his mate, and for my trouble, got my teeth knocked out. Wow. So we don't have to go any further with this. <laughs> you know, if he asks you to do something, even as a kid, if you're with him, you can't say no. Yeah. If you're not with him, he's not going to ask you. <laughs> so you're, you know, anyway. So now in Rochester, Pat at the time uh, wasn't bothered because he had another case, which he finished up getting seven years for. So he wasn't really bothered about what happened. But I was bothered because I looked like now serving the full 20 months of the six months to two years. Pat, it made no difference to. He's getting seven years anyway. So I go back to... So I'm, oh, so I go back to Roch, get back to the wing. Now we're put in separate wings and there's a couple of tasty black fellas in there. Oh, I will say this in the riot. Every black fella fought... 
and 90% of the white fellas banged themselves up. So that goes to <laughs> So it was more or less evens. <laughs> In fact, they probably won. And that's a fact. Every one of them fought. And all the white fellas who said they would fight. And I wasn't even a racist. You know, I had mates who were... It was just... The, it was terrible in prison. <laughs> so... Where were we? You know, I'm getting ahead of myself or behind myself. Right, so uh, back to a wing with... Anyway, we... It was all smooth. It was all smoothed over. But during this injury, after the riots, I had to go to the hospital to have something done with my nose. I was in there overnight with a guard. Teeth were knocked out, you know, stuff like this. So after I'm back in, now I don't know. If I stay in Rochester, I'd already served at the time, getting on for 12 months. Looked like no way of getting out in the 13 or 14 months. But I go back to Wormwood Scrubs to have an operation on my nose. Wormwood Scrubs at the time had an in-prison hospital, actually would do small operations. So back to Wormwood Scrubs, to the Borstal Wing. Go in hospital, and it's very nice there. There was an old Maltese fella there called Carmelo Sultana type of villain from Soho, you know, had clubs and stuff. We used to play Kaluki and I liked it. And I said, I like it here. He said, yeah, I bet you do. Your family could come and visit you in the hospital by the side of the bed. So they've done the tests and you're not meant to eat before the operation. So he says to me, Carmelo, he said, listen, when you go, you know, he liked playing Kaluki with me and he was, you know, he's going to be there for a while. He said, listen, when you go for the op operation, put a sweet in your mouth. They won't operate on you. Mm. So this is what I did. They said, you had anything? What's that in your mouth? I said, oh, it's only a polo. You not, can't have any. They were, now you'd get away with it. But they'd do the operation. So I delayed it for a few days. Wormwood Scrubs uh, Hospital... Only one thing I can say of any interest, if it's interested at all, but it happened. Uh, there was a separate part of the hospital, same hospital, but where they had cells for psychiatric people. I believe they were there at some point. Uh, Jerry Kelly, who was blew up the old Bailey, he's now a member of parliament in Ireland. Blew up the old Bailey. Yeah, they blew up the old Bailey and then went on hunger strike. Is this IRA stuff? Yeah, IRA stuff. They blew up the old Bailey when they had their and then went to uh went on hunger strike where they force fed them. When Bobby Sands and those did the hunger strikes, there was no force feeding, they'd stopped it, but they force fed him. And funnily enough, I met him years later, Jerry Kelly, in Ireland quite recently, and I said I was in the same place as you at the same time. He said, Yeah, but for different reasons. <laughs> <laughs> Well, he's a member of parliament now, the same as all those terrorists are, Jerry Adams. They're all members of parliament, aren't they? You know, natural-born killers are now running the country. But anyway, that's, that's just the way it is. It's... So one thing of interest, so separate to the where the ward was, which was just like a, an old-fashioned hospital ward, beds, nurses, cocoa at night, you know, that. <laughs> the only thing you had to wear was the prison pyjamas, the old-fashioned blue and white stripe. Have you ever seen them? Well, we had black and white stripes right, in are... Arizona. Did you? Yeah, 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 yeah. like B stripes. What? For pyjamas or for all day wear? All day. Oh, yeah. No, these were yeah. just for bed. Okay. 
So there was a cleaner, a cleaner doing the cells that are locked that people can't get out of psychiatric cells, which is a branch. Of, so he's cleaning and I'm out, but I can't remember what I was doing. I had my pajamas on. Maybe, I don't know. He said, do you want to see something? I said, what? He said, come here. He was an old boy, probably done 40 years. You know, spent an old lag with his mop and, you know. <laughs> <laughs> come here, Red. Come here, he said. Do you want to see something? I said, yeah. I go there. He opens the door. He says, look in there. So I look. I'm sorry, I'm not jumping. It's the microphone. I nearly swallowed it. So, <laughs> so I I look in there and I see a bloke doing one-arm press-ups. Who do you think it was? Bronson. No, Brady. Brady? Ian Brady, the Moorsman. Ian Brady? Yeah. So that, <gasps> and I went like that. Because I'd read that. I think the book had come out beyond belief. I think Ooh. I'd read that by So it gives you the creeps. But the way he said it to me, come here, do you want to see something? Like I was going to get a surprise or something. And he was chopping kids up and recording it, wasn't he? Yeah, terrible. Yeah, he's dead now, isn't he? he went on home. But he was, that's the type of people they could have in the hospital, people who are on hunger strike. People, anyway, yeah, it gave you, me the horrors because this was a famous case. I grew up with this case, the Maud Murd. Yeah. You know, you've got to remember, when was this? About the same time the Crows got arrested, wasn't it? 66, I think. So this was from when I was a kid. This had been, this, you, everyone my age knows this story well. Anyway, so out the hospital, I have the nose operation and I'm out the hospital and I'm thinking, where am I going to go now? Rochester, I think, dizzy with it, how long more I've got left. <laughs> I don't know, because it's a funny sentence, Borstal. Okay, it's not like IPPs now where you can serve hundreds. Oh. You know, that's a ridiculous thing. But... Sometime in the next year, I'd be getting out, but not in the next three or four months, <laughs> if you know what I mean. So, so I'm stewing in the cell there. Uh, oh, one funny story in the cell there, if you're <laughs> for anyone who likes Perfect. sort of funny stories. At the time, you couldn't have teas, kettles, nothing. So we used to make... Uh, hot water. There was three in a cell, so there was a single bed and two bunks. The prime positions were the bunk, the single, someone else had that, and I had the, the bottom. But I was, anyway, so we used, how you used to make tea is you had a fluorescent light, take it out, put two wires in with the old-fashioned razors which you used to get, and build, boil water. <laughs> so we're, we're doing a brew one night, we hear the boots coming down, which means we're going to get someone in the cell, probably, because it's three to a cell. Anyway, a fella came in, and, and the fella who was in the cell, I don't remember my cellmate, he was quite a tough guy. He was from Liverpool, and he was quite rough, and he was older than me, but he was a Borstal boy as well. Anyway, a fella came in the cell, screw goes, we put the water on, and the fella, fella comes in the cell, he says, can I have that bunk? And the scouser says to him, no, you mucking can't. Get on the top bunk. Not badly, just like, so he's sitting on the top bunk. <laughs> The water's boiling. The scouser says to him, do us a favour, mate, see if that water's hot. The fella puts his fingers in the water and shots, shoots right off the bunk. (laughs) (laughs) Just a museum prison story, the way he said it. So I'm in the cell, about out of hospital, two, three weeks. Grant, governor wants to see you. 
go in to see the governor. He's got this folder, you know, traditional British governor at the time, tweed jacket, you know, <laughs> <laughs> looking. Uh, but remember, these are governors of Borstal boys, not hard. These the. So he says, Grant, he says, I've got your folder here. You're a bit of a troublemaker, aren't you? He said, Rochester don't want you back. Oh, I said. He said, so that leaves us in a difficult position, doesn't it? You know, I'm being a bit humble. I said, I guess so. He says, well, I've rang your dad up. They're allowed to do that in Borstal. If you can stay out of trouble for a month, you're going home. Wow. And that's what happened. Wow. Because I didn't know how long I would... If I would have gone back to Rochester... I'd have probably done another year. Yeah. Oh, grief. That was lucky. Mm. Okay. Where do we go from here? So when you got released, did you decide to try and change your ways or were you just slipping right back into it? No, decided to get worse. Worse? <laughs> no, when I say worse, decided that I would do something where I could get some real money. Okay. And what was that? checkbooks and check cards there was a fella called tommy cullen probably dead now in my flats who had been doing it always had money always at the dog track you know it's not ideal but this is the life i grew up in gambling dogs drinking not so much drinking for me but that was the culture growing up in the east end gambling drinking fighting i weren't any good at fighting and i weren't any good at drinking but i certainly knew how to gamble <laughs> <laughs> oh dear, i keep drinking water it's sorry. okay go for it and the checkbook scam did, so you, what it was, did you have a good run on that i had a tremendous run yeah uh but didn't do anything with the money in those days uh if you had a checkbook and a check guarantee card which were only 30 pound per page so if you had a checkbook with 20 pages in, you could get 600 quid. Just go from bank to bank. It was before the time. And we used to buy the checkbooks off burglars, dippers, you know, and pay for them. It then went up to £50 a page, but they used to stamp the back. So in theory, you could only do one a day. You could do more in casinos, but you could get some stuff from art shops where you could spray it on the top and take the stack. Anyway, we don't want to go into that kiting, as it's well known. <laughs> the only thing is, when you get caught, you get caught for quite a lot. So I eventually get caught. I'd bought some... Russell and Bromley shoes, silk shirts that I was selling. This was the days with the stamp. Or this would have been that I was selling in a gambling club called Swings in Denman Street. Most of the people who would go there would be dead now. But it was quite a famous club. It was in next to the Regent Palace Hotel, unlicensed gambling club, good action. But I got arrested coming out of that club. So they were watching it or someone shot me. I would say more likely they were watching the club, seeing who was going out. So they see me going in. Anyway, cut a long story short, I'm in the police station. Oh, you're a kiter, are you, Mr Grant? I said, well, I dabble. He said, well, I've got news for you. He gets up. He comes in with three plastic bags. You know what they seal the police bags with, the plastic, where you thread it through and you can't open it. One, two, three, he throws them on the floor. He says, these are all yours. 
Because <laughs> what happens is they match each checkup. They had, I think the fraud squad was C6 at the time. It was in Holborn. So as the checks are coming in, they match them up for fingerprints and put them all together. So that when you eventually get nicked, all the kiters. So he said, these are all yours. He said, you can either charge, we can either charge you for the lot of them or we can charge you for one page of each book and TIC the rest. He said, are they yours? There's no point saying no, they are. <laughs> and they've got, uh, so then uh, I get three years, three months for this. So I had a bit of a run and back to Wormwood Scrubs. Not, uh, I think I was on remand in Wandsworth, Brixton, Wandsworth, different places, but back to Wormwood Scrubs. And now I would have been 18 or 19. So, because at a time, at that time, you could either go to Aylesbury if you were very young, but they had a system called where if your sentence come into play after you were 21 they'd call it being starred up and you could go to an adult prison yeah I watched the movie starred up it was really good was it I've never so seen it young offender goes to adult prison yeah and his dad's in there and he's like disrupting the drug business mm. with his behaviour mm. and there's other gangsters like trying to put him in check and his dad protects him and it gets out of control, but it shows how the senior staff are bringing the drugs in and that they're making money off it and stuff. Yeah. Is it good? Yeah. It's really good, really good acting. If anyone's watching this, you want to get an idea of the UK prison system, Start Up is probably the best movie out there, I would say, that I've seen. Really? Yeah, yeah. more modern. Going back to the old times, what was it, what was, um, what was it called, that one? Scum. 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 What, what, what do you think of and, scum? And do you remember who the star... Well, it's okay. It was a bit horrific, but yeah. it was okay. Yeah. Uh, do, you remember the, do you remember who the star in Scum was? I watched it. I was a kid. I watched well, I'll it. tell you, because he's in loads of films now. He was the daddy, Ray Winston. Oh, right. You've seen Ray Winston, haven't you? He was the... It was a good... That was quite authentic. Yeah. Yeah. It, the, the, it shows you, like, what was... Yeah, anyway, yeah, it was quite... Mm. Where the kid cut his own dick off. Mm. Yeah, Scum's pretty... Uh, it's pretty gruesome, <laughs> wasn't it? Yeah, you had some scenes. So, yes, so I get starred up and not going to go to an open prison because of Borstal Records. Most people who'd been in trouble in Borstal's or proved troublesome, riots, fights, shipped out, would go to the worst place possible if you're a southerner because they couldn't send you up north. They didn't, Now they can send you anywhere and they can if you're doing long sentences. But they can't send you to... The worst place for us to go was Camp Hill. Camp Hill. On the Isle of Wight, which was situated between Albany and Parkhurst. I think the maximum amount of years you could have had in Camp Hill was four, possibly five. You couldn't go there longer than, than that. Then you had to go to a... And the worst thing about Camp Hill was there was a, quite a lot of troublemakers there, uh, was visits. Because in those days, I live in the Isle of Wight now. You can get hovercrafts, you can get catnaps, you can get white links. In those days, if the weather was bad, the ferries are cancelled. Mm. The amount of time my people had to stay over in a bedsit the night because the ferry was cancelled. So it was it was a bad place. Mm. It was miles away from anywhere. 
And Camp Hill was better than Worm and Scrubs because you're not locked up. You have association at night. You can play games. You can watch TV. You can play sports. But you do have to work. <coughs> Nothing much of note in the in the prison. Uh, I, my sentence was three years, three months. So that was in the days when you did two-thirds. So I think I did two years, one month, maybe 10 days longer for, you know, little bits of trouble. But that's not much considering I was there the best part of two years. Yeah. You know, small things like refusing to work, you know, just small bits of remission. Mm -hmm. There was no parole on those sentences. They were too short. Yeah. (coughs) So you did do your two thirds. The good thing about it is that when you get out, you're out. As we speak now, I'm on license. I've got to go and see a probation officer every month. It's a nightmare, you know. For uh, so this last, and that's on a short sentence. If you get a long sentence, the people who I met in Ford, who've come finishing long lumps, they've got to be on license for five years. And it's just it's like doing a double sentence. You can't leave the country. You can't do this. You can't. It's quite prohibitive. Anyway. If you intend to travel, go back to the two-thirds system. They should have an option, shouldn't they? If you don't want to travel, you can get half. But if you want to travel, you can do two-thirds. They should give you know. They should at least give you some some option. Does that sound fair? Yeah, uh, those guys on the IPP sentences—they're on license it's forever, like, forever. Yeah. They can't leave the country, can they? They're no. allowed to go on holidays after a certain amount of time, aren't they? But other countries won't let you in. Depends what you're... Europe's pretty okay, but other countries... Mm, yeah, I guess so. Yeah. I mean, I, I went back to Thailand after... We'll get into that after, but I went back to Thailand after f- doing my sentence there. Yeah. Yeah, but if I were a drug case, it would have been... But you've got to remember, computers were slightly different then to they are now. I was released from Thailand, say, in 60, late 66, early 2007... So what we going, 23 years ago? Computers are a lot more sophisticated now than they are then. So you could still get back to countries. Mm-hmm. I remember, I'm jumping ahead of myself here, but I remember when I went to prison in Switzerland and I didn't escape. I just didn't go back on a day out. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't escape. You can't call it a grand escape. I just mm. didn't go back. And the social worker there, I remember him saying, Michel Grant, when you F off, don't get caught. <laughs> <laughs> so they more or less knew. But so, and getting through borders and that was a lot, a lot easier. So yeah, now I guess they're pretty tough on everything. Yeah. But getting back to that, when I did get out from Switzerland. They had my passport. And at the time, I had an American visa in the passport. And the passport, when you had an American visa, it's multiple indefinite, which meant you can stay in the States for six months periods. It wasn't this visa waiver program. You had to go to the American embassy and that visa lasted till the passport expired. It's multiple indefinite, six months, month out. Mm -hmm not just to Mexico or something, off the continent. You had to go off the continent and you could come back. And I remember thinking that I'd like this passport because I had ideas of of going to America. And back to the famous jewel thief, the swan again, he said, they have to give you your passport. He said, it's English property. (laughs) 
So I said, do those. So I went to the Swiss embassy in Bangkok. Uh, <laughs> I'm getting senile, fellas. <laughs> went to the Swiss embassy in Baker Street. We're nearly there. It began with a B. And uh, said to them that, you know, I'd escaped from their prison and could I have my passport back? Now, you've got to remember... They're not going to extradite you because they've given you a day out. If a prison give you a day out and you don't go back, they don't ask to. They don't ask to extradite. It's finished. But along with the sentence, I had a thirty-year ban from Switzerland, so which what, means I could probably go there next week. <laughs> no. What? So what happens in between your time getting out in the UK and you jump over to Switzerland? My mum died. She was sick for a, a while. She was at home. She died before, obviously, my grandparents, who I used to live with. Thank God when I was in prison, I didn't see her that sick. So I'm out for a couple of years, maybe, going to gambling clubs. One of the most famous gambling clubs in London that's ever been is a place called Russo's. And lots of people listening to this cast, I'm tapping my feet again, sorry, guilty. <laughs> lots of people listening to this cast, if they've been involved in the gambling scene in London in the last 30 years, 40 years, will know of Russo's. It was situated on the adjacent corner where the Victoria Sporting Club was. So a lot of time was spent in Russo's, where you would get all form of villains popping in and out, going from the Nashes to all forms, you know, to the Arifs, all for, who would come in there to gamble, to play poker. So time was spent in there, different gambling clubs, different moves, trying to get money, but no arrests as yet. So you're out and about hustling? Out and about in gambling clubs, hustling, hustling around for money. There was a place I used to go to, not far from Russo's that I mentioned, uh, a lot of these names that I mention will mean nothing to a lot of people, but people who are involved, even today, who in the gambling scene and poker scene would have heard stories of these places. So it's not for everyone, but it's part of my story, so I'll tell it. So there was a place that we used to go to called The Butchers. Obviously, the man who owned it once was a butcher. He had three butcher shops. He finished up with none. <laughs> Uh, and he was a, a famous character. And in this club, which was at the time, it was before Holden Poker, which is now super popular. It was seven card stud. And it was a dingy dark room with fantastic food and games that go on for two or three days. And you'd get people from all walks of life come into there. And I really mean all walks of life. And the common denominator was gambling and the laugh and stories, because most people would be stoned. Hash was all over the place then. And there was a skinny guy who used to come in there called Serge, who I'd known on and off for a few years. It was known that he was in, always had money and always had hash. So two and two together, he's a drug dealer. <laughs> always. And uh, I remember saying to him one night after I went skint, any move, Serge? He said, maybe. Now, I'm not going to go into the full lead up, but the story was that he was going to Switzerland, of which he had a relative who 
worked in the Geneva Customs. So Switzerland, as you know, is split up into three cantons, French, Italian, and uh, German. So he had, and he said, I've got some people coming from India and we're going on to Sweden because the sale for hash at the time in Scandinavian countries, we're talking early 80s, was three times or four times what it would be in the UK. So the hash was coming on to Sweden. Would you be interested in helping me get the hash from Geneva to Sweden? Give you a couple of grand. Jump at the chance. <laughs> Jump at the chance. So a great friend of mine, Scouse Bill, who's dead now, he was the first person who introduced me to ashrams and an alternative lifestyle in India. This was at the time when, do you remember the Rajneesh was around, the old Bhagwan who had 90 Rolls Royces. <laughs> <laughs> but to start off with, it was fun. I keep telling I'm leading off at tangents here, aren't I? But anyway, to cut a long story short, he said to me, make sure you get your money off, Serge, half up front, because he's a slippery so-and-so. That's all the advice I can tell you, give you and be careful. So we're standing at Geneva Airport, waiting for a fella called Louis to come through pass his relative who's on the customs and you could see the people as they were at the bag exchange there now it's the other way you can't see them but you could see the anyway and then they went through and then you saw them after customs so you could see your people arriving in the bag anyway louis comes through two bags through customs straight through Good. Go to Sweden on the train, cut them boats, and I got my couple of grand. I said to Serge, this is easy with your relative, isn't it? How much will I get if I bring two suitcases? Or oh, you'll get a lot more. Anyway, Muggins here. <laughs> Goes to New Delhi. Well, that was an experience. They they guarantee the dope will get on the plane in India, and it did do. But the build-up to this was, so I'm stuck in a hotel in Old Delhi, never been there before in the 80s, you know, walking through cow shit. and But I loved, you know, it was something about it that immediately I got there. This is a weird thing to say, but I felt at home. That doesn't mean that I lived in a shithole and walked through. <laughs> I, there was something about the place, the smell, the colour, the activity, that really gave me a bigger buzz as gambling. But waiting for the hash now, there's a fella called Jindy who came to see me in Thailand years and years later. He had family there who was my liaison to take me to a guy called Papu, a Sikh, 
who and I went to this where met Papu and he's sitting there and he's chasing the dragon, this Papu, and there's this thick smell of hash everywhere and stamp blocks. It was like floor to ceiling. And I'm bringing, I think, 22 kilos back, 11 kilos in each case. <laughs> and there was loads. But we had to wait for a certain thing. So needless to say, Papu, you want? <laughs> Make you feel good while you wait. Anyway, that was my first dabble with the old brown sugar. And I had 10 days wait in India, which went lovely, you know. Going round, this was when you first take heroin, it's a great drug. That's why people continue taking it. Mm. And travelling round India stoned is perfect. Because even if Indians are not stoned, they look stoned. <laughs> it's slightly different now where, you know, we're going back. At 1981, it's nearly 40 years, isn't it? You know, the India of today is a lot different to the India of then, although parts of it are the same, especially. The, anyway, so I was staying in this place and hash is ready on the plane. As soon as I walk through customs, Miss Shaw, open the cases. Mm. So I'm nicked. Serge had no relative. Working in customs. But I've taught myself into doing this. I've said, I'll do it. That looks easy. And then he probably thought, because probably Serge didn't want me to get nicked because of my friend Bill. Bill was quite rough and he didn't want word out that he... But I asked for it. You know, he didn't offer this to me. When after the Sweden thing, I said to him, and greed's a funny thing on both sides, I said to him... I'll do this. I'm getting greedy. And straight away, he's now thinking, well, he's volunteered to do it. Let him do it. So it's greed works both ways. So now I'm now in, uh, where were you going to sell this? And knew that prisons in Switzerland thought they were quite tough speaking to Mori the head who had served the prison but he'd swerved it in the German part so I'm now shoved interrogate you know asked 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 shoved into this cell of which now I've got dysentery <laughs> but I didn't realise it an amoebic dysentery but I didn't realise it was dysentery I thought it was like I'm just getting the shits because I've been on the tackle for 10 days <laughs> I didn't associate the two I just thought this. So before and now, all I remember of the cell is it was like a hole in the ground, like the French toilets used to be when you travelled abroad when I was a kid. It wasn't like dirty. It was just that's what it was, you know. And I remember just stripping off, having no clothes on, sitting on the toilet and just coming out of me. It was like my insides were coming oh. out of me and I couldn't move. So they take me to the hospital drips, dysentery goes, didn't feel the withdrawal symptoms at all because I had this. That will, I'll tell you, if you're worried about withdrawal symptoms, get dysentery, that'll stop the worry. <laughs> <laughs> so probably lost a huge amount of weight. Get to the prison after seeing, they call them judge, the instruction. It's a completely different setup to the UK. You're in a building and uh, get back to the 
prison, put in a room, looks fairly nice, it's evening time. In the morning, door opens. Bonjour, monsieur. There's a cabinet there with hot milk, chocolate, coffee, lemon tea, croissants, <laughs> bread and butter. I'm scratching my head here. I thought, because <laughs> I'm a bit, you know, high from all the drugs. And, <laughs> you know, I'm used to Wormwood Scrubs, you know. <laughs> You're a tray walking up the <laughs> Anyway, yeah. So, after that, get let out. You've got menu cards to fill out. People have got TVs in the cells. Uh, there's found out later that there was uh, about 300 and between 350 and 400 people in the whole prison 60 to 70 percent foreigners and rough foreigners you know Albanians Russians this was before the Al I you know it was free to travel you know ex-legionnaires people people like that swiss were there mainly as conscientious objectors for not going to the army with the occasional drug dealer they're sri lankans there who deliberately got nicked they're earning a hundred quid a week wages in 1980 so they deliberately got nicked to get the wages to get the wages Wow, because they're so then, poor where they were from. And then got deported. So it, the deportation... They the money back with them then. The, yes, the deportation would take four or five months. They'd get the money and take it. So I'm in a single room. I get friendly with two Swiss guys, not from the army, drug people, and told them uh, about my case. And they... Uh, and it was a nice cell, you know, we had like, uh, it was cold, snow everywhere. And so it was cold and we had a bucket cut out of the bars where there'd be all this French cheese and his wife came up, you know, twice a week. And But the food, it was just, and a TV. And they said to me, look, if you get under three and a half years or three years, I don't remember this now, whether it's three and a half or three you will go to an open prison, which means after X amount of time, you'll be given a day out and you can f piss off. <laughs> so, uh, go to the next meeting. No way out. You have to plead guilty. So, no, in these cases, you have to plead guilty because there's no way out, is there? And all you're going to get is a longer print sentence. You can't invent stories. I didn't know the cases. were. It's just a waste of time. So, <laughs> so at my first hearing, the inclination is that the prosecutor asked for a sentence. If you plead guilty, it's not up to the judge to give you the sentence, although he does the prosecutor asks for how long. And it looked like I was going to get five years, which meant no closed prison, still good conditions, but no early release, mm. like two-thirds. With the sentence, you were going to get barred from Switzerland. So a girl who I was friendly at the time, I was with a few years She'll hate me for mentioning it, but I will just out of spite. 
Alison Forsyth, who's a professor of English literature at Wales, some Welsh university. Anyway, she was, she won't mind. Uh, she came to court crying and bawling. She weren't a professor then, obviously. <laughs> Drug addicts. Came to court crying and bawling. The judge took, must have felt, got out the right side of bed and gave me the sentence where I'd go to the open prison. <sighs> now, the open prison was a farm prison. It was called Boshe and it was on the borders of of the German parts. So all the guards there were German speaking or they spoke the local gypsy dialect, Romanche. There's four languages in Switzerland. These were like farmers. Well, you had to work there. There's no way out because if you don't work, you don't get what they call conge, the day out. Like, what do they call it here when they give you a day? Whatever. They give you days out in prison here, don't they? And then you get your home leave. A day release or something. Something like that, which you have to... So... So as a malingerer, this must be terrible for you to have to work. There was no way out. But the work here, there was a few jobs you could do. One was a chicken factory where... You go to a chicken factory, you eat, have a lovely lunch and you stop at supermarkets on the way home and and buy a... You had a TV in the cell and nice food, you know, when you get back in the evening, fresh bread, just like... But before I get to the chicken factory, I've got to do farm work and I'm working with two conscientious objectors who are both Jehovah's Witnesses. Well, let me tell you something. <laughs> they could work. And the guard was Swiss German. And our day consisted of, we used to have to go around and get maize for the cows. So it was all shuffling. After that, and I was dying and they were just laughing at me. And I was, you know, and then we had to do like silos of rotten grass, which would be like 50 foot tall with three windows, one there, one there, one there. So you start at the top and you've got to get the stuff over your shoulder to get in the things <laughs> as you're getting lower it's it's harder to get it over then when you reach the window you've got to shovel it down we can you can imagine and all this is rotten stinking grass that's gone round and and then we do other things you wouldn't think this was difficult but like filling carts up with hay same sort of thing well in the end you know if you do supersets in a gym by the time you finish the last set you might as well. It's like you've got the full weight on there. Well, this is like shoveling hay. It don't weigh anything. <laughs> and then to finish off that, we'd have to take bark off trees. And I thought, I, but I got fitter doing this. Yeah, it's good wholesome exercise. And good food. But to start off with, yeah, it was good. It, you know, I didn't, being a malingerer, I suffered this work. <laughs> you know, I suffered this because I realised that I started to enjoy it. It was good food, country air, and you were getting fit. But I didn't like the, the guard and the Jehovah's Witnesses. So I get the job in the chicken. Did they try to convert you? Not really. No, no, no. I, you know, I think I made it clear early on that I don't believe in anything. <laughs> <laughs> and I think they might have tried yeah. if I would have been a bit receptive. Mm. I said, I, you know, I remember saying, look, I don't even believe in doing work. I'm do good for you. It's what <laughs> I said, I'm doing this under sufferance. Just leave me alone. 
and they left me alone. <laughs> but if I'd have been receptive, they might have tried to convert me. But these are the worst people you can work with if you don't like working. <laughs> you know. And the guard, you don't like the German guards? I don't think he liked English people mm. or foreigners. Mm. He gave you that impression that you've come here to get money out of his country. That type. He didn't think he was a racist. He just didn't like criminals. Yeah. But he weren't violent or anything. But, he, you know, he'd give me shit jobs to do. Mm. And, uh, and you can't refuse. Anyway, so after that, I get to the chicken factory. And there's girls working there and, you know, but, but it's a horrible job. You know, if you smell what chickens are like, your hands sting. It's not like nice cooked roast chicken. This is raw chicken. And taking giblets out and putting them in bags. Not an aphrodisiac, is it? What's the bonus is you get to go to the supermarket. You get top food in the restaurant there, like, you know. And I think most of the important thing, I've said this before, is wherever prison sentence you're serving, whatever country, food is important, isn't it? Food determines a lot of things. I was told whoever has control over the food has control over the prisoners. Mm. So food yeah. is, uh, and a lot of your time, because you haven't got much to look forward to. No. So the food in Switzerland wasn't a problem. It wasn't as good this farm place as the other place, but it was wholesome and and uh, and yeah, so I didn't stay in the chicken factory long because the summer was coming now. So, and my conge is getting closer. So the good job I had in the summer was they would bring wood, logs, freshly cut logs. And the idea was to stack them as high as the plank would reach. So you start off with just the ground you have to put thin pieces of wood stack them that way then stack them the other way so it's also hard work because you start off you're bending down then as you get higher you're bending further <laughs> up and then when you can't reach you have to go on top of the pile and then yank them up like that <laughs> and then when you've finished when the plank doesn't get any further you could lie in the sun for an hour <laughs> So Not with was, the female workers, though. No, they were in the chicken factory oh. with the giblets. There's no female <laughs> workers now. So it's getting close to my conge. But before we get to the conge, I'll tell you a couple of interesting things that happened when I was in Chandelon, which is the holding place, the remand place until you get farmed out to the prisons. There was a case in England in the early 80s, where they found a banker called Roberto Calvi hanging from Waterloo Bridge with X amount of grands in his pocket and a suicide note. True story in the paper. I heard it at the time, I think. Okay. So you'd have been young then in 80s. Yeah. What would you have been? In the 80s. I was yeah, born this in... This was early 80s. I was born in 68. Yeah, so you'd have been a teenager. Yeah. Yeah, 15, 16. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Big, big time news headline, wasn't it? Big news headline. Yeah. Because then what it led to was skullduggery with the Vatican Bank, the Masonic Lodge P2, which was mentioned, which I think distant royalty and members. It's a powerful Masonic Lodge. And they wrote a book going into this whole story. If you get the chance to read it or get it, it's a terrific book. It's called In God's Name. Don't know who it's written by. 
and it involves there was a, a pope. I think he was a Sicilian pope, but my facts might be wrong here. But he was a young pope that they found dead after 47 days with a heart attack. And he was a young pope. This is all fact, but uh, my details might not be the age, how long he was. And in the book, it insinuates that this pope was going to expose the link between the Vatican Bank, which was a fella called Bishop Marchenkis, and a fella called Lucio Gelli, who was the linchpin between the Vatican Bank and the Mafia. Now, you can imagine the Mafia and the Vatican Bank, you know, they're two of the biggest crooks. It's mind-boggling what could have been. So, Lucio Gelli is in prison the same time as I am in Chandelon. But he's in a special unit where they would keep terrorists, the high, here you'd call it Cat A, but the high. Three days before Christmas, every cell, not every inmate, every cell, whether you'd be in a single or a trap, the most there was three in a cell, so there'd be ones, twos and threes. Every cell got a hamper from the Geneva equivalent of Harrods. Mm-hmm. Compliments of Lucho Jelly. Wow. I mean, his wife used to fly from Argentina twice a week to see him. Wow. I thought this could never, in an English prison, this couldn't happen. But he got permission from the governor that he'd like to treat the, you know, mistreated prisoners who were eating steak and, you know, all sorts <laughs> of good food that they needed. A, and there was everything you could imagine that you'd imagine from a Fortnum and Mason's or Harrods hamper. It was that type of thing. Yeah. Wow. Everyone got one. Compliments. I'll never forget Lucho Jelly. Did Three, they try and silence him? He didn't choke on a chicken bone or anything. Three days after he escaped. Escaped. After, three days after the six guards went to prison in Switzerland, they made it look like someone had killed him or kidnapped him with vials never to be heard of again. So you can draw your own conclusions. Was he escaped to be killed or was he escaped because he was that powerful never heard of again not dead not alive but they couldn't have him talking wow and this is a cat a, a cat supermax super max. my prison was high security but it wasn't super max but this section of it was for him to get out of the prison four gates had to be opened i'll have to read that book one of the guards Apparently, I don't know, I was told this, who got went to prison, said he made me an offer I couldn't refuse. So he got enough money to be worth the prison and get out and lose his job. Like the original El Chapo. Amazing, huh? Yeah. <laughs> this is over here. This is not. And, that, yeah. and one, other, one other interesting story. I don't know if it's amusing or fun. It's definitely not funny, but in a way it is. <laughs> I'm walking around the field. We used to play football or lie in the sun. This was in the summertime in Chandelon. So I summered in Chandelon. I wintered and springed in Bochet, and I was out in the summer. <laughs> so I did 13 months, but sort of. But there's a fellow walking around the yard, and he was limping. And I said, what's his name? They said, he's he, he's from England. His name's Gordon. But he was in a different section to me, so I couldn't see him all the time, only at certain exercises. Now, this Gordon used to get a tray from the kitchen, like a wooden tray, a hospital tray, full 
with roughage, cabbage, potatoes and whatever greens, like a tray full of it. Anyway, I managed to catch him one day. I say, Gordon. Yes, he said. What can I do for you? I said, what's with all the cabbage and the potatoes? He said, I lost my stomach. I have to eat this because I can't digest food. He explained why he had to eat it, but no stomach. If you've got no stomach, there's some. Now you'd be on tubes and cap anyway. And that was the only way he got. He had to eat a vast quantity of this stuff. I said, what happened to your stomach? He said, the same as my leg. I lost it. So when someone says they've lost their stomach and their leg, what are you going to say to them? Well, you're going to say how? <laughs> what do you want to know? <laughs> You know, I said, how the, you're not allowed to swear on this, but you can imagine how the what you, how, uh, he says, let's save this for tomorrow, being as you're so nosy, because we must have had to go. Turns out Gordon, which was his name, can't remember his second name, had a girlfriend who left him and threw himself under a train. So getting to talk to him, I said, what, you just went to the train station with the idea of throwing yourself under a tube. He said, no, nothing like that. I said, well, how the f- do you do it then? He said, well, I was standing in front of the tube. I thought of the girl and suddenly I woke up in hospital. So it's not something he planned to do. It was standing at the edge of the tube and just doing it. It wasn't like he planned to, to do that. So that explains the no stomach and the leg. So after about three or four years of repairing him, Gordon's got the will to live again, but not the readies. So he goes to Pakistan, fills the false leg up with heroin and gets caught. So after that, I used to call him Lucky Gordon and we'll become mates. So it's not a funny story, but it's a story. (laughs) You're laughing, so you must find it funny. God knows what they did to you in Arizona. Tragic (laughs) comical. (laughs) So it's tragic comic, isn't it? Yeah. You would call it, I watched that last night, three billboards from Ebbing, Missouri. Have you seen it? No. It's a black comedy. Watch it with Woody Olsen and Francis McDormand. (laughs) That reminds me of the Gordon story. Yeah. Watch it. It's It's a good film. Well, that's a good one to round off on because we're going to um, be meeting Pepsi Watson here soon. Mm. So we appreciate... Did the half hour go? Yeah, yeah. Then time fly when you're having fun. Like that, doesn't it? <laughs> uh. um, so so everybody who's watched this video out in, on YouTube and, and listened to it on the other podcast, to have Tom come in, like classic old school jewel thief. Here, you know, there's not many people like that you come across these days anymore. Hear all these stories going way back and how it was back then. Absolutely fascinating. If you've enjoyed this video, please put a question or a comment below the video. Tom will probably read these, um, may get back to you. Is there anything that you would like to say to the people watching this video out on YouTube and listening to it on podcasts? Uh... Because you run a business now, don't you, out of Thailand? I, at the moment, the business is dormant, for want of a better description, because I can't go back to Thailand until November. But I will start the business again, 
but we don't have time to go into it now so let's do it on the next thing yeah but let, let's let's at least plug it because it's a very okay. humanitarian thing so if you go to adventure holidays thailand and we'll put the link in the description box below this video and this is on youtube and look at all the videos that are uploaded by high speed patia so the name is high speed and the ones all the other one adventure holidays in thailand aren't relevant to me how do you spell patia for people p-a-t-t-a-y-a -A. so uh and there's about 10 videos there showing the business I started up when I first realised my wife had MS. But to get to that stage, we've still got a few more stories. So if you want me back, let me know. I'm here till November. So it's holidays, holidays for disabled people. And it's a very humanitarian thing. So if you want to support Tom, click over to the links, the videos on YouTube. Check that out. And like I said, if you've got any questions or comments for him, put them in the comment section. Appreciate all your support. So, cheers. Thanks for coming on, man. Mm. Yeah, 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 cheers. <laughs> well yeah. done. Yeah, huh? yeah. Is that it? Are we off camera? We can tell the truth now. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> he sat there doing all this financial modelling, working out, is everything going to be okay? It is so rewarding when you get to that point where the business has finally turned around. Sage empowers finance professionals like Kat to feel more rewarded with helpful business tools and advice from real experts. Sage. Helping business flow.